morning and welcome to Hay. It's a pleasure to introduce the sixth event in the Cambridge University series. This is held in association with Cambridge University. And it is my pleasure to introduce Professor James Jackson, who is the Professor of Active Tectonics at the Department of Earth Sciences in Cambridge University. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Um, what I'm going to do today is try and give you some idea of the world we live in today in terms of earthquakes and tsunamis. You hear about them fairly regularly on the news uh, these days. And the world has split into two quite different experiences in the developed world and the undeveloped world. I want to explain how that's come about, what we do about it. And doing something about it is very much... Um, putting ourselves in the role of detectives. The Earth is doing these grand experiments around us, and our job is to try and understand what's going on, looking for clues which tell us why they're happening and, and how to prepare for them in the future. Uh, and we have no control over what's happening. So it's really that's the spirit of, of what I'm going to be telling you. I'm going to tell you what's behind this picture. This picture shows how many earthquakes in each century killed more than 10,000 people or 50,000 people. And you can see here, going from 1,000 years ago, 1,000 years AD to today here, you can see that for a long time, there was about one of these earthquakes every 20 years. It was quite difficult to kill 10,000 people. There are not many places you could do it. And there was about one every 20 years. And then, as you can see, the Industrial Revolution starts, the world gets a busier place. We have one of those every about five years. And now we're not far into this century, which is certainly going to be the worst and we already get about one of these every couple of years, and some of these names you'll remember. Most recently, the Japan one uh, in, in 2011. So I want to explain what's really behind that, because it's obviously related to the world being a bigger place and there are more people, but it's also related to how those people live, how they concentrate in dangerous places, and how they relate to the world, how the world works, how the geology of the world works. That's what I want to get across to you. Uh, you do need a tiny bit of background information, only two things. One is to know that earthquakes happen on faults. Faults, are, faults move when rocks break and slide past each other. Here's, a, here's an example, outside Los Angeles. What you're looking at is a stream in the background, here's the stream in blue, and it suddenly stops at this line and is offset sideways like that. And it was offset along that line, which is the San Andreas Fault, eight metres in an earthquake in 1857 outside Los Angeles. And this is like a knife cut. This was 200 kilometres long. It goes down about 15 kilometres into the earth, and it moved over a few seconds like that in this place, uh, eight metres. They can move up and down as well as sideways, as we'll see. Now, they're not moving all the time. The rocks want to slide past each other, but they're held tight on the fault by friction and the strain builds up on the fault until it can't move anymore. And I'll show you a little animation which will show you a, a fault like that with some imaginary fences crossing it. And as the strain builds up, this is the fault, uh, the, the fences are locked and they bend. And it bends and bends and bends. That's the colour changing until eventually it breaks and it, ruptures. it starts at one point and ruptures along like that. And that's what happens in the earthquake. So the, the rupture starts at a particular place, which is called the epicentre. It tears along like that. And afterwards, you have 
the offset. So here's an example from outside Los Angeles again, where you can see a beautifully ploughed field, and it's torn apart by a line coming through there. That's a fault which moved, in this case, offsetting it about a metre sideways. So that's one thing you need to know, that earthquakes happen on faults, and so understanding earthquakes is a matter of understanding how faults work. You will have all heard about plates, tectonic plates. What that, what's that about? Well, here's a map of the Earth, and if I put on also a map of the earthquakes, which are the red dots, each of those earthquakes is a fault moving. And more importantly, where there are no earthquakes, there's nothing going on. So we have a map of dots. We join the dots. Everyone's trained to do that in this country from about the age of five. We know how to join dots. And those yellow lines are the plate boundaries in the Earth, and it's really that simple. And you can see that that is how the plate boundaries work. And on those yellow lines are all the biggest earthquakes of the last 100 years. So these 10 are the biggest earthquakes of the last 100 years. The ones in green happened in the last decade. So we've had a busy time, us seismologists, looking at these things. The yellow dots show where they all are. Now, these are the biggest earthquakes. And we'll come back and talk about those later on. They really are huge, these things. And you can see 2000 Sumatra, 2004 Sumatra is right up there. So is the one in Japan and Chile. But they're not, amazingly, where people die. People don't die in huge numbers in those earthquakes, except in tsunamis, which I'll talk about. Most people die up here, where you'll see I haven't joined the dots. And if we zoom in on that region here, in Central Asia, you'll see only a lunatic would try and join the dots. Right? There are dots all over the place. There are many, many earthquakes. You can't join the dots. And the key is that they do not happen on plate boundaries. So here the earthquakes are on a very narrow line, you just join the dots, that's the plate boundary. Here you can't do it. And the problem is you can't say what plate is Athens on, or Tehran, the capital of Iran, or Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. They're not on plates. They're in the middle of smashed up zones here, 3,000 kilometers across from India to Mongolia, or it's entirely smashed up with lots and lots of faults. Same in Iran, same in Greece. And so this is part of the problem. And that's as much as you need to know for background. I'm going to start by telling you a story about a little village here, right on the border of Afghanistan and Iran, called Safida Bay. This was destroyed in an earthquake we went to in 1994, and it was a tiny little village. Here it is. Only 200 people. They were mostly killed in this mud village in the middle of the desert. Now, this is a truly miserable place to live in this desert. If you look out on the, on the east, this is the Dash Dimago, the desert of death in Afghanistan. This is where a lot of the fighting is going on now. If you look out to the west, there's the Dash Shalut, the desert of hell. And in the middle, between these two places, is this tiny village, Safida Bay, which was destroyed. And you think, well, these people have a hard enough life. This is a miserable, difficult place to live. Is this the earth being just vindictive? This was the only settlement for 100 miles in any direction at all. The earthquake was precisely there. It wasn't very big, but it was big enough to completely wipe it out. So is there more to this story, or is it just bad luck? So I want you to talk, tell you about this, because this is here we are in detective mode. There's some people back here, and you can see behind the village is a little ridge. Now, what actually happened in this earthquake is this kind of fault here, where one side is pushed up on top of another. Uh, so it's not a sideways movement. One side gets pushed up on top of the other. But this fault doesn't even come to the surface. It's rather like moving a telephone directory. If you push the top of the telephone directory over the bottom, because of the binding, it'll turn into a fold at the end. And this ridge is caused by this fault making a fold at the surface. It doesn't even come to the surface. And you might think, well, this is hopeless. How can we possibly identify these things before they move if they don't even come to the surface at all? And the answer is we have to use these detective skills. 
And this is a, a picture I'll show you. This is a satellite image taken from space. The colors are, are false colors, so don't worry about the colors. Uh, but this is the scale, five kilometers at the bottom. And this is where the village is, Safida Bay. The name actually is part of this story. We'll come to that in a minute. Now, what do you actually, what, what can I show you to see what you're, show you what you're looking at? This line coming through there is a road. So this was a little village on a, on a trade route here. And what you can also see is there's a black rocks behind it. This is the ridge. The whole thing looks like it's in an earthquake, I'm afraid. You have to watch it. So this red line shows the ridge behind that village, and you can see there's a gap there, and that gap is rather important in that ridge. The other thing you can see is a river. It doesn't flow very often, but when it rains, that's where the water goes, out like that. But you can also see that in the past, there must have been a stream coming through the village to make all these little dry valleys. All these dry valleys come back to that gap, and that tells us that in the past, there was a stream which went out like that, making this fan surface on which the village lives. So, how does that all work? What that tells us is that this ridge, which only moves about a metre in each earthquake, it doesn't move very much, you can do a thought experiment. Supposing it moved 100 times, what would you see? What you see is this, is that you grow a fold, and the river which used to come through this fold, this, this ridge here, um, eventually had to cut down in a canyon as, as the fold was pushed up. Eventually it got blocked, dammed, and it made a lake. Eventually it just gave up completely and went round the end. And that's what happens today. So if you look at the signals in the landscape, if you can interpret them, you can see what's going on. And let me show you then what that looks like. Here's the satellite image in that cartoon. I'm going to show you a view looking across that gap. So here we are looking across that gap. There's some people standing over here for scale. Out here is the village, now reconstructed. Here is the gap. And the gap has the white lake beds here. So the lake, when it was abandoned, has been lifted up about 70 metres above the desert floor. That's the white stuff there. And these black rocks here, either side of the gap, are the black rocks here, either side of this ridge here. And the river used to come through like that, and now it's diverted around the end. Let me show you what it looks like from the road looking back at that gap. So the view this way, back at the gap, what you see are these white lake beds lifted up above the village with the black rocks either side. And most importantly, just there is a spring because the lake beds are an aquifer. The lake beds are porous. They contain underground water. And as the lake beds are lifted up in successive earthquakes, water leaks out. So the reason the place is there is because of the spring. It's the water which makes life possible in this utterly miserable place in the desert. They live here because it's the only place you can live. And why is the water there? It's there because of the fault which makes the earthquakes. And this is the deal in a lot of Central Asia. You live here because there's water. There's water because of the fault. The fault makes life possible. The downside is that when it moves, you get killed. So this is where the, the name becomes part of the clue. The name Safida Bay means in Persian white water. And that's because the water is coming out of the white rocks. Now, this situation is exploited absolutely brilliantly in Iran. One of the glories of the Persian civilization and history is how this works. I'll explain it in a minute. But first, I want to show you this is not just fantasy on my part, this interpretation. We can actually measure all this now from space. There are satellites which come over. They're radar satellites. They come over like this. They're very high up. And they send a radar beam down to the Earth. And you can measure very precisely the distance between the satellite and the ground. Well, then there's an earthquake. The ground moves, it changes because of the fault movement, and the satellite comes over again, measures that distance, and it's changed because the ground has actually shifted in the earthquake. And amazingly, we can measure this. 
We can take account of the fact the satellite's not quite in the same place and all that. This is just geeky technical stuff. We can do all that. And what you can actually do is measure how much the ground changed to within a centimeter accuracy over the whole region. And what this is, is a contour map of that. This is where the village is, these concentric things like a thumbprint, each, each fringe colour is a change in distance between the satellite and the ground of 2.8 centimetres. And that's what you, what you see here is an uplift of this entire ridge behind the village. And if I show you a section across there, this is a cross-section, what you actually see is 62 centimetres in this particular case of uplift. So that ridge grew by 62 centimetres behind the village here. We can measure it very, very precisely and we can even actually calculate um, what that should look like. So this is what the satellite observed. The patches which are missing are just where the radar didn't bounce back to the satellite. And here's what you calculate on a computer. And to match the two, all you need to know is the precise everything about that fault. You need to know how deep it goes, how long it goes, how much it moved, how steep its inclination is, and we know all that. So we really can show that what I talked about is true. We can actually understand exactly what happened even though the fault never makes it to the surface. Now, as I say, this is exploited in Iran. What happens is the fault moves, and as the fault moves, it grinds the rocks down to a very fine clay, and the clay is like an underground dam to the water table. So behind the fault, the water table, which is in blue, is like a reservoir. It's elevated high, and that's why it leaks out at the surface in a spring. Uh, and here it's much lower. So what they do in villages is dig tunnels back to intersect the range front, the mountain front here, to tap the water, which then flows to the village. And these tunnels can be tens of kilometres long. They're enormously skillful things to, drill, to dig. And every, few, every 20 metres or so, there's a vertical shaft to the surface so that the people working down here can breathe and, and bring sediment up to the surface and so on. So here is one of those vertical... Uh, this is a picture from the air showing a line of these craters across the desert floor in Iran. Here, these are the, the vertical shafts coming to the surface. Uh, these things are called kanats. That's the, the word for them. And here are some people actually maintaining one of these things. So there's a hole here, there's an ancient windlass, and there's a rope going down to some chap underground digging out sediment uh, which had accumulated in one of these things. Now these, as I say, are a fabulous part of Iran's history. This is a picture looking down one of these which is now dried out, it's ab abandoned, and the light is coming from the vertical shafts as you go along these things. And here's one producing beautiful, cool, fresh water at a village in the middle of the desert, making life and agriculture possible. Now, as I say, you can wander around in the desert of Iran. You come across these beautiful places. This is a fantasy garden in a place called Mahan, which is in the middle of a desert. And there's water, there's there, there are fountains, there are ducks, there are trees, little pavilions for picnics and so on. This is about four or 500 years old, this one. And it's there because of a canat, a tunnel, bringing water to it. Here's another very famous place. This is Tabas Golshan, Tabas, the flower garden. This was a, an oasis visited by Marco Polo uh, in the 13th century here. And he described it as being very, very beautiful in the middle of nowhere. And it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 1978 in a terrible earthquake. Here it is from, viewed now from the air, where virtually everything was destroyed in this town. And to put this in some sort of context now, this was a, a town of 13,000 people and 11,000 were killed outright. This is 85% death in this place from this earthquake. And again, Tabas was the only oasis for 100 kilometres in any direction in this place. And the earthquake was precisely there, absolutely bull's eye hit. So let's have a look at that one. 
Here's what it looks like. This is a satellite image of, from Tabas, and in green, really is green now. These are the trees of the oasis. These are the mountains behind. And it was, again, one of these blind faults where the fault doesn't even come to the surface. But now you're getting your eye, and you can see these folds here, these ridges coming up above the desert floor. This is where they project to the surface. These are the folds. And Tabas has always got its water from a canat, a tunnel going back, to tap the water in that fold in that way. So that's how it's got its water. And all the clues are there in the landscape. You can see here a river which is having to cut down because that fold is rising up in successive earthquakes. And the view of that river is really astonishing. It's like a, a little Grand Canyon. If we look inside the river that way, there's this deep slot in the desert landscape going down here. And at the bottom, it looks like this. And this is because the river has been cutting down with time. And this river produces its own difficulties, which they'd known about for a long time. Uh, the, when the summer thunderstorms in the mountains, the water here is channeled down this canyon and used to flood Tabas all the time. And they discovered about 400 years ago how to deal with this. They built a water gate back here. And this is a beautiful construction. The water gate in the gorge is like a dam, but it's not really a dam. It's like an arch dam built of bricks, but at the bottom it has a hole. And the hole allows all the boulders and rubbish from the river to pass through. Uh, but limits the height of water to something which is manageable downstream and doesn't flood to mass. And this is an entirely maintenance-free, beautiful architectural solution to a problem of living in the desert with flash floods coming down this canyon. So there's a very close relationship then between where people live and this, the water supply and the earthquakes, which brings us to the BAM earthquake of 2003, which some of you will remember. This was a truly awful earthquake, which again hit a jewel of a medieval oasis in central Iran. Uh, this is a map of Cambridge, where I'm from, and I'm showing you this map because I'm now going to show you a map of BAM at the same scale. So BAM was, had almost exactly the same area in size and population as Cambridge. This is a map of BAM, and the colours show the degree of destruction in this particular earthquake. So yellow is about 20 to 50 percent destruction, the pink is 50 to 80, purple is 80 to 100 percent destruction. And this is what 100 percent destruction looks like. So this is downtown BAM. You can no longer tell where the streets are and where the houses. It's just rubble, head-high rubble, as far as you can see here. Uh, out of 100,000 population, as I say, the same Cambridge at the time, 30,000 were killed outright in this earthquake here. So 30% is a fairly typical kind of number you get from these rural towns um, in Iran. And this is, again, the bazaar area here, where you can see there's absolutely nothing left at all. You can't tell where any of the old alleys and streets were. So why is it there? Once again, Bam was a desert oasis. It was the only place. There's nothing with 100 kilometers in any direction, and the earthquake was exactly there. Bam is famous for growing dates. It grows the most famous and tasty dates in the Middle East. That's what it's known for. It's been known for hundreds of years for that. And all the green here are date palms. And looking at this, because now you'll see how we do this, you can see an obvious line here in the satellite image. That line there is a fault. There it is, that line. And it's one of these folds which comes to the surface. And let me show you how that works. So once again, it's a fold which comes to the surface, fault which comes quite near the surface. It makes a fold at the surface in these marls, which are marls are a kind of dirty clay limestone. It's impermeable. What happens is that the mountains in the west produce outwash. Every time it, it, it erodes and, and floods, you produce lots of sediment, which ponds up against the fold here. The sediment in yellow is permeable. The marls are impermeable. So the water is ponded behind this fold. 
And what the local people have done for centuries is dug, dig these canats, these tunnels, back through the fold to get all the water here, to bring the water to grow the date palms here in the suburb of Baravat. And here's what it looks like. I'll show you a view on the crest of this ridge looking that way, and you'll see the craters of the canats here. They're bringing the water through the fold to grow the date palms here in Baravat. And an aerial photograph, a view from a helicopter looking at this fold, it looks like the moon. Lines of these craters, hundreds of tunnels taking this water. For the last thousand years, these have been there doing this kind of thing. So, again, it's this very close relationship between where people live in the desert and, and where the water supply is. You don't have much choice about where you live. You have to live where you can get water. Here's another example. I'm just trying to cement this idea of how closely people live. Here we're looking at another earthquake in 1968. This is the fault ruptured right across the, the plain here. So that's the tear of the fault. And it moved in this way here. So the background moved to the left. And you can see all the field boundaries offset here, about three metres. Here's a view on the ground of that same area. These are all the field boundaries here. And they're offset sideways. The background moved to the left. This is the rupture coming right through there. There's the rupture. And, uh, again, this is, this is this fault. It was a big earthquake. It was about 80, 80 kilometres long. But here's the view from the air. This is why I'm showing you this. This is an aerial view. And what you can see is the rupture coming through here. Here's the rupture. You can see the tear going right across the landscape like that. And you can also see these lines of craters from these underground tunnels, the canats, right? And what, this is a modern set of canats which were offset by the fault. So the fault just sheared them off three metres and they'd had to, they, they had to dig new ones to renew it. But if you look very carefully, you can see here ancient remains of earlier canats. So there were whole earlier canat systems coming through here which are offset by even earlier earthquakes. So there's preserved in here a whole history of how the earthquakes worked. And this one is particularly interesting. You can see one canat here, all these craters, which follow precisely the fault. And I'll zoom in here and show you a detail of that one right in there. This is a detail. You can see the tear from the fault coming through here, and you can see how precisely these little craters follow it. Now, when Alexander the Great came through here in 300 BC, he was fascinated by these canat systems, which he called Persian canals, and he described them as ancient in 300 BC. He was in, really impressed by their antiquity. And this is really clever. What these people did, who dug these tunnels, they realised that one side of the fault, the water was higher than the other side, and so they could dig a tunnel along the fault to increase the flow of water into the main tunnels. And that's why they did it. So they understood this close relationship centuries, even thousands of years ago in Iran. We geologists rediscovered it about 10 years ago and thought we were terribly clever, but actually these people knew all about it. And it's even closer than that, because in this part of eastern Iran, what you see wandering around the villages is a characteristic blue colour to the roof. So these roofs are, 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 are mud brick roofs, and they put a blue clay on it in winter to seal it against winter rains. And this is very characteristic. You see it all over. Here's another place where, again, you can see that the roof colour clay is rather different from the rest. And you say to these people, where do you get this clay? And they say, oh, there's a quarry nearby. Well, behind is the fault. This is the fault which is responsible for these hills being pushed up. And you go to the fault, and what they're digging out in this quarry is indeed this clay where the rocks grind past each other on the fault and break themselves down into this very fine blue clay, which is impermeable. That's what's holding up the water. That's why the village is there. And they dig it out to put it on the roofs. So you might think, well, wait a minute. These people obviously have you know, clear understanding of how all this works at some level. If they know that's how, you know, where the earthquakes are, why do they live there? Why not move away from the faults and the mountains? 
The answer is you can't. This is what Iran looks like away from the faults in the mountains. It's salt flats, desert. You can't live there. There's no chance of agriculture. You have to live where the water is. Now, the point of this is to say the following. These are places which have been destroyed in Iran over the last 1,000 years. But what happens is this. That little place I started with, the little village Safida Bay, eventually grows into a bigger oasis, like Tabas. This was the one Marco Polo described, which was destroyed. And that grows into a bigger rural town, like Bam, down here, where 40,000, 40,000 were killed here. Bam then grows into a big town. So these towns like Tabriz here and Rudbar, were again, big earthquakes which have killed lots of people. They get bigger and bigger, these places, because they're in the same position, all of them, for the same reason. That's where the water supply is. And that leads you to capital cities like Tehran. Now, here's Tehran, the capital of Iran. Here's a picture of it. It now has a, a daytime population of about 10 to 12 million. It's a huge place. It's been destroyed four times since the start of Islam, absolutely raised to the ground every time. But in those times, it only killed, the earthquake only killed a few hundred or a few thousand people. It was a minor, minor stop-off on a trade route. And then about 100 years ago, it became the capital of Iran. So it really boomed. It turned into a big megacity now, 10 million people. And as you've seen, a, a, a kind of characteristic number for the number killed in these earthquakes in these places is about 30%. So these places are now time bombs. And let's have a look at Tehran. Here's a view from the air, satellite image again. You can see the mountains. This is a place about the size of London. It's all built up now. But right in the middle, you can see a little ridge here. And you can see rivers cutting down to get to that ridge, just like we've seen in the other places. So there's the front of the fold. There are the rivers which cut down as the fold is being lifted up. Those are the faults where they would project to the surface here. And for 30 years, Tehran got its water, until the 1930s, rather. Tehran got its water from this in exactly the same way that Bam and Tabas and all these other places get their water. It's now long since been forgotten, and they get their water from reservoirs in the mountains. But tragically, about 10 years ago, this fold here, uh, Tehran decided it, it wanted to put itself on the map with sort of an iconic building like an Eiffel Tower, so it built a big tower just here. And here it is on the ridge, because you get an extra 50 or 100 metres elevation uh, for building this thing. And more tragically, right next door, they built the big new hospital here, which has got you know, the play thing which really does have to survive the next big earthquake. And it's, these are the worst possible places you could site such things. So what this is, and I'm not singling out Tehran, this is true throughout Central Asia now. There's a complete lack of connection between what the, the, the geologists and seismologists know and the planners, architects, engineers who actually need to take account of all this. So this is part of the story. So if we come back to looking at, looking at uh, Asia here, these are the earthquakes, and the black lines are the main trade routes east-west through here. These are... Uh, this is the Silk Road system, as it's known, right? And if I take away the earthquakes, you can see these trade routes follow the mountains, the deserts, the edge of the high plateaus, the places where no one can live is where they, they, they avoid, and they go along the edges of the mountains, which are all made by the earthquakes. And if I put on that map the earthquakes that I showed you right at the beginning, the earthquakes of the last 1,000 years which have killed lots of people, this is where they are. These are all along these trade routes, most nearly all of them, on towns where in the past, sure, the earthquake may have killed 10,000 people or, or, or less, but these are now cities, many of them are many more than a million. And this is the situation we have in Asia now, is that these huge cities have grown since the Second World War, and the people are concentrated into the dangerous places. 
They're there for very good reasons. They're geological reasons. They're, they're situated because of the water supply. They control the trade routes, the strategic access around the edge of the desert, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but that's why they are where they are. And I'm not singling out Iran. Iran had some very good geologists we work with who thoroughly understand all this. Uh, but it, this, uh, out of these 120 earthquakes on this slide here, 36 of them are in the last 100 years is a point to make. So it, it's really hotting up. A lot of these places in the past are very vulnerable, everywhere from Istanbul all the way through Erzurum, Ezinjan, through Tabriz, a lot of these places you'll know, Samarkand and so on. So and just in the last 100 years, we've had two on this system. Over oh, nearly a quarter of a million died here in 1920 and also up here in Tangshan, 1976. So, as I say, it's not just Iran, just to show you. This is Tehran that I've just shown you, destroyed here, but this is Almaty, the former capital of Kazakhstan, which has been destroyed three times in the last hundred or so years. Here's Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan here, and there are others. You know, there's Ashgabat, which is the capital of Turkmenistan, Tashkent of, of Uzbekistan, Wenchuan was the big one in Sichuan in China in 2008. They're all in the same situation, vulnerable for the same reasons. They're there because it makes sense to have to live there, that's where the water supply is, but now you are extremely vulnerable. Now, I said earlier that the biggest earthquakes in the world are not there. So I've talked about Asia up here. The biggest earthquakes here are on these plate boundaries. And here, although they're the biggest earthquakes, they don't really kill that many people except in tsunamis, and that's what I want to say a little bit about now. They're all on plate boundaries of this sort, where an ocean is sliding underneath the surrounding continent. So if we look at Japan, what's happening in Japan is the Pacific Ocean here is sliding underneath Japan. So this is the Pacific Ocean sliding underneath there. The plate boundary is this interface. And what happens in the earthquake is that interface bust all the way along here. Right? And that made the big earthquake, but it also made the tsunami, which is what caused all the damage. And let me give you some idea of the size of what we're talking about. This picture shows the area of the fault which moved in this earthquake. Here's Tokyo for scale, and this is the patch of that um, interface which moved between the plates. It started in the middle, it ruptured both ways for about 500 kilometers. And the average amount of slip was 20 meters, that's about the length of this tent. And to put that in perspective, here is that on a map of the UK. So that's like moving a fault from London to Edinburgh and in width from Cambridge all the way to Bristol here and moving it 20 metres. This, this moves around so much stuff, it actually changes the orbits of satellites which need to be recalibrated afterwards. These are one of the great things the Earth does. And trying to understand it then is very important. Let me show you what happens. Here's how this works in these things, which are called subduction zones, where one side moves underneath the other. So this could be Sumatra, it could be Japan, where the ocean is sliding underneath the surrounding land like that. Now, it's like, in the case of Japan, it's going at about 8 centimetres per year on average, but of course it's locked. The fault which is going to move is that red surface there, but mostly it's stuck by friction. It's locked, but that isn't going to stop the Pacific sliding underneath Japan. So all the Pacific does is take the whole thing down with it and, and compress the whole thing like a rubber ball. And by squeezing it like a rubber ball, the land bulges up. The offshore bit, if there's an island, goes down. Uh, and the whole thing is just compressed and compressed until it can actually move. Now, in this situation here, it can only go on for a certain amount of time. 
in that case, it's loaded, it's ready to go. And we can see that. Well, I want to get across to you, this happens on a human timescale. So this is a view of uh, one of the islands offshore Sumatra before the series of big earthquakes which happened the last few years. So what you can see here is a forest in the, in the sea. Right? Forests don't grow in the sea, that's why it's dead. It's dead because the island has been dragged underwater as the thing has been loaded like this, ready to go. Here's another place. This is further north. And what you see here is what looks a very artificial grid of something in the sea just here on the beach. If we zoom in on it, this is a coconut plantation. And so this was a coconut plantation which has been dragged into the sea and killed off. Right? So here we're clearly dealing with a human timescale. Now, you can tell, therefore, that this is already loaded to go. So what happens in the earthquake is that the, the fault then gets released... So having been held by friction, it gets released and it pops back to where it was before, like that. The island pops back up, the land goes down, the island will come back out of the sea. So let me show you how that works. Here's the picture I showed you of this island before the earthquake, with the coconut grove in the sea, ready to go, loaded. Here it looks afterwards, after the earthquake, it's popped back out of the sea. Now you can grow coconuts there again if you want. Uh, it's all land, right? So this is... Uh, another place, this is further north again, where this is what it looked like after it had popped out of the sea to reveal very interesting things. So what you're looking at here is the old high tide level. This is where the high tide used to come to, the edge of the forest here. The new high tide level is way down here because the island's popped out of the sea. And what it revealed is a very irregular, artificial-looking grid pattern here. And if you zoom in on that grid pattern, you can see what it looks like again here and I'll zoom in even more closely, it's quite clear what these are. These are rice fields. These are rice paddies which were cultivated. They've been dragged underwater during the loading side of this whole cycle, abandoned, of course, but now they've popped back out of the sea, and now they're growing rice again in this same place. So this whole thing happens on a human timescale, is what I'm trying to get across to you. So after that, the cycle repeats. It gets dragged down. It bounces back up again. This is the picture I showed you before the, the, uh, an earthquake there in 2007. This is the forest sitting there in the water. After the earthquake, it popped back out again. So here's now the forest out of the sea. You can grow uh, trees there again. And all the white stuff here is actually coral. So when the, when the forest was drowned, coral was growing quite happily underwater. Now, of course, the coral is dead and the trees will come back. And what you can do is dig a trench through all this uplifted forest. And here's a trench that's been dug. And what you can see is a whole series of these things repeating. What looks like snow and is white is actually coral. And what you can see down the bottom here is coral. This is a time when it was sea. On top of the coral is soil. And soil was when it became land again and could allow trees to grow in it. The trees are coming through here. And then on top of the soil is coral where it would drown. The trees were drowned and it went back to being sea again. And by doing this, you, can, you, you, you get a whole cross-section of what's happened. And the, the forensic work is to date all these corals and to find out when the previous earthquakes were. So we can get a whole history of how often these things happen. So this is the kind of work we have to do. So... How is this related to the tsunami? As the thing pops up here, as the island pops back up, this happens in the space of a couple of seconds. It happens very, very fast. And because you're moving the seabed up at the same time, the water just has to get out of the way. 
So the water surface changes just as the sea surface changed, and that's how you make a tsunami. So the shape of the sea surface is the way you change the shape of the seabed. This pops up, that goes down. And what matters for the tsunami is the, is, is the scale of this. So the base of the fault is about 40 kilometers down here, and because this is very gently inclined at about 10 degrees, that distance is about 150 kilometers. Now that's important because... Um, it turns out that if you have a long wave like that, that's what makes a tsunami which will cross the ocean. Now, you should be able to calculate this, and this is the problem I'm getting around to in Japan. Japan, the main problem was caused by that tsunami being bigger than it should have been. I say should have been because we can calculate all this stuff. If we know how much the fault moved, you can calculate the shape of that wave and how big it should be. And we can calculate how much the fault moved in principle. So here is a map of Japan. Tokyo is down here. This red patch shows the patch which slipped the most, between about 10 and 30 metres here offshore. And because we know where that slipped, we can calculate in blue which bit goes up, which bit goes down. We can calculate the shape of the tsunami, and everything should be hunky-dory. Now, in actual fact, the tsunami was much bigger than it should have been, and that told us there was something going on which we didn't know. Uh, and let me explain how that works. So what happens is you make a wave which looks this. This is like this shape. It's hugely exaggerated. It's about nine metres high here. In the case of Japan, uh, 150 kilometres across there. So 300 kilometres wavelength. And why does it matter? If it, what matters if it's that, that size is the wavelength is very much bigger than the water depth. If it's much bigger than the water depth, it has this property of, of moving around the world without changing its shape at all. And that's, that's a very important uh, feature of this. Now, it also has the property that it travels at a particular velocity speed, which is the square root of gravity times the water depth, which turns out to be about the speed of a jumbo jet. So it travels at about 500 miles an hour, this thing, right? So what does that mean? It means if you're on the landward side here, so in the case of Japan, if you're in Japan, or in the case of Sumatra, if you've been in Thailand, what you see is the wave goes down first. So the first thing you see is the sea withdraws. It goes away, right? But this is traveling at 500 miles an hour. This is 150 kilometers. It takes about uh, 10 minutes to come back, right? So it takes about 10 minutes to travel that. So this was a shocking picture which appeared on the land. You have about 20 minutes total from when it starts uh, before it comes back. So this was a shocking picture that appeared in the Sumatra, after the Sumatra earthquake, of the sea has disappeared. People go down onto the the beach to see all the fish flapping about and, and old shipwrecks and this kind of stuff. And then 20 minutes later, of course, the wave is going to come back in and, uh, again and get to you. Now, these people amazingly escaped. Uh, the, whoever took this picture didn't. This picture, the bottom was recovered by a camera which was washed up in land some time later. And again, it shows someone walking down here on the beach as the tsunami comes back in afterwards. So it's quite clear from this, as you can guess what I'm going to say, is that knowing what to do is the important thing. You need to run away. You, have, you can get a long way in 20 minutes with a bit of motivation. And what you've got to do is get up high out of the way. Now, let me explain how this actually works then. Because the problem with Japan is that people did know what to do. Japan people are extremely well prepared here. They did try and get out of the way. The problem is that this particular tsunami came in. It was bigger than people thought it was going to be. And the problem with it was it washed over a flat plain. This is where people died. What people were told to do and did do was get onto the top of buildings which were built very, very strongly, buildings looking almost like multi-storey car parks. The wave could go through, they'd be on the top, it'd be all right. The trouble was these buildings weren't tall enough. Here's a view of some of these buildings. These are three-storey buildings and the wave clearly went over the top. It's covered in debris. In the background is 
a four-story building here, which was okay in this case, up here. But the, and in the background is a high ground, so anyone who's over here will just go up 20 metres, they'll be fine. But people on the flat plain were drowned because they did the right thing, but the buildings just weren't high enough. So the tsunami took us all by surprise. It was higher than it should have been. It came in over the top of, uh, of walls, which had been designed to protect places from the tsunamis. Here it is pouring over the top of a wall here. Here it is pouring over the top of the wall protecting the Fukushima nuclear reactor. And this is the one which caused all the trouble because it knocked out the, the backup power supply, which is here. Uh, because it was higher than anticipated. So the, I'll try and explain to you what happened, because the, from the earthquake point of view, before I even do that, let me say from the earthquake's point of view, the thing was a huge success in Japan. And put, let me put this into context. There was an aftershock of magnitude 7.9 just outside Tokyo immediately after this earthquake. The last time there was a 7.9 earthquake outside Tokyo in 1923, 150,000 people died. This time in Tokyo, a city of 35 million people, three died. Right? The, the performance of the buildings was absolutely miraculous. Some of you will have seen on the television these um, pictures of the, the, the skyscrapers swaying around like palm trees. They were moving 10 metres at the top um, for four minutes at a time, and nothing failed. You know, that's a fantastic tribute to the Japanese engineering quality and, and design. On that flat plane in Sendai, there were 20 bullet trains going at 200 miles an hour in the time of the earthquake. Every single one was brought to a halt automatically without a single derailment, without a single injury anywhere. These are fantastic achievements. But the tsunami killed 27,000 people because it was higher than it should have been. And the question was, there was something going on which we didn't understand. What was it? And we've only just sorted this out. And I want to tell you how we, what, it, what did it um, and, and how we discovered it, because it, it gives you some idea of how science works. Here's this cartoon showing how it should work. So the, the Pacific should slide underneath Japan. Japan just gets pushed out over the, over the Pacific seafloor here. The, the trench is the deep part here. What actually happened in this case was there was another fault which moved like this. And this fault is this black line here, and this little block it moved in this way. Uh, so the fault moved this way here, on this, uh, with the, the left-hand side coming down. The effect of that is to shove this block forward. And this, the simple analogy is if you imagine a triangular block of wood on the floor, and I tread on it like that, it'll shoot forward. But it can only shoot forward if everything behind here stretches to allow it to do it. So it's pushed out, and this extra push out here, uh, moved it a huge amount, something like 60 metres, and what that does is give an extra push to the sea, so you make an extra big tsunami pulse right on top of this little block. It's quite short, because that block is small compared to the fault, which goes all the way back down here to 40 kilometres. But that is actually what did it. And if we look at this, this is a Fukushima wall, this is the coastline, Tokyo is here, and these dots show readings of how high the tsunami came and all the way along here, and this is the height in metres. And this line coming up here, which is six metres, that's the height of that tsunami wall. And you can see all the way along here, it went up to something like 30 metres in places, uh, the, the run-up of this, this tsunami. It went way over the top here, all the way along this coast, and those two triangles are buoys offshore which were measuring the water depth here, and you can see what it looks like. This is time going along here in hours. That's three hours. This is the height. And what you see is the very long wavelength coming through here, which is the main tsunami, but with this very high spike right at the front, this very high peak, which is that block shooting forward at the front. So this is what we only, has only just been discovered, that this is actually what did it. 
Um, the interesting thing about it is, there, there it is, is that you, you, is why it should have happened in the first place. So why did this happen and, and how did it happen? Well, what actually happens is, is that it's not only Japan which is getting pushed out over the Japan Trench, but there's a lot of sediment on the Pacific seafloor. The sediment is stuff washed off the, con the continents, it's dead bugs, it's all sorts of rubbish just being dumped in the sea out here, and that is also coming in on this system. And what actually happens is when the fault moves, it just breaks up to the surface there, and you have a wedge of sediments out here which just gets shoved underneath this material moving out. So if I identify that wedge with this little dot here, that wedge with the dot gets slid underneath, like a wedge going underneath here, uh, and it piles up. So that's what it'll look like the next time the fault breaks out here. This is our original wedge, which has been lifted up. And then it happens again and again and again. And what you do is you pile up a whole load of wedges like this, with the youngest wedge being at the bottom every time. This slope gets steeper and steeper and steeper until eventually it fails, because it's become so steep it fails. And it fails by one of those faults here simply moving the other way. It just allows it to move the other way. That shoots this block forward, and it allows all this behind here to stretch. And the reason this was discovered is because Japan had some one fantastic quality information. This, uh, we can even calculate how fast this is going to do it. It's going to move it at about 2% of gravity, which is quite slow, which is how you make these extra tsunamis. But this little map here, which is not, all you can see is some red balls. What the red balls are, one of the things you can do by looking at the sound which comes out of the aftershocks, is you can tell, is this an extensional fault or is it a compressional fault that's didn't? And all these red ones are extensional faults above the main fault. And what it's telling you is indeed that whole thing collapsed. And this was the key bit of information, it turns out, because the Japan earthquake is not that unusual. There are about six other earthquakes in the last 20, 30 years which produced bigger tsunamis than they should have done. And there was clear that clearly a process going on which no one understood. And we all, a number of us realized at the same time uh, that actually all these earthquakes had the same feature. If we look again, these are, there's one in, in Nicaragua in 92, Java 94, and this, this, this is tsunami uh, in Sumatra. They all have these red blobs next to the black one, and the red ones are these extensional aftershocks, and this, suddenly the penny dropped that this is how, actually how the whole thing worked. And then when you go back to Sumatra, which was the last one which behaved like this, again, this is a map, these red blobs along Sumatra, this is the, the big island, this is Bandarache, the red blobs here are where the thing moves enormously much. This purple patch here is where the, the fault moved 30 metres, and that patch has on top of it all these red ones here. So suddenly the penny dropped, and what we now realise is that there are two types of behaviour. In some places, all that happens is you keep shoving these wedges underneath, and it's quite stable, it'll be all right, it'll, it'll stay like that. In other places, it collapses, and you get this different pattern here with extension behind. And the point about this, and the reason why it's interesting, is that that is something you can actually then use. So you can now go around, and people are going around the coastline of the Pacific. So for example, north of Honshu and Hokkaido, the northern part of Japan, it's like that, and there's no sign that it's unstable. Um, south of Japan, towards Taiwan, it all looks like this. So we know that in those places, our simple calculations of what to expect are going to be too small, we better do something about it. Right? So this has some predictive power, and you can see that the, the reason it's worth trying to understand what's going on. It sounds like closing the barn door after the horse has bolted and so on, but actually your understanding of it leads you to prepare better for the future. So let me end by talking about that. 
here's, some, here's a picture of some children on the coral reef in Sumatra after the big earthquake, and they're all smiling. They're all on the, on the uplifted coral reef on that island where I showed you the rice paddies, and they're all very cheerful, and you might think, why? Because the tsunami washed right over that part of the island. Here they are standing on a coral head, which probably weighs a couple of tons, just tossed onto the reef by the tsunami. The reason they're all cheerful is that on their island almost nobody died. Their little island here, Simulu, had an earthquake in 1907. And the old people from this island realised, it's part of their folklore now, that big earthquakes are followed by tsunamis. The moment you feel a big earthquake, you have 20 minutes, you run inland onto the high ground. And out of this island of 75,000 people, only seven were killed. Right? So this is a huge success, and it really illustrates what saves lives in tsunamis is knowing what to do. It's education. Right? You have 20 minutes, and in most places you're not on a flat plane. Most places you can get on, you don't have to get very high, 20 meters, and you'll be fine. Uh, and, that's, uh, and this was reported at the time, some of you will remember it. The, they made a big fuss about this that the people who knew what to do were fine. The people who drowned were immigrants, mostly from India, further north in the islands, who didn't know what to do. It wasn't part of their cultural history. Uh, and so it's education which matters. And that's why, actually, this is such a shocking picture. You wouldn't see this, I don't think, around the Pacific Rim, because in almost every country, school children and people are warned all the time what to do. There are, there are signs all over the place. And, and this is an interesting story. These two here, Chris and Lil Chapman. Chris is a colleague of mine, a professor of seismology in Cambridge, and he happened to be on the beach um, having breakfast in Sri Lanka when that big tsunami happened, having a, be a breakfast on the hotel, in, on the beach, the sea withdrew, and they had time to get everyone from the hotel on the roof of the hotel, and also the entire fishing village next door to the hotel. They got everybody from the fishing village on the roof of the hotel. The tsunami came in 20 minutes later. It trashed the village, went right through the hotel, but everyone was absolutely fine. So it's really this business of education which matters. The, the moral of the story, of course, is that all these flashy resorts need professors of seismology in permanent <laughs> residence. I say this to my students. There are jobs for all of them. All they have to do is, is do the right thing. Um, so what's behind this picture, then, is much more than the world's getting busier. It is getting busier, but it's get, the, the population is concentrated in dangerous places, uh, because, especially on land, especially in Asia, where these small earthquakes kill many more people. The problem with Asia, as you can see straight away here, is that each of these dots is a fault we know nothing about, mostly. And if you're on the plate boundaries like Japan and Sumatra and Indian Ocean, there is only one fault you have to know about. And people do, on the whole, know what to do about those things. And that's why they're much better prepared. The, the, the Indonesian tsunami was a tragedy. There were 200,000 died in Indonesia. But that's because they really didn't know what to do. Um, that is really what's behind the, uh, the, 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 and all these earthquakes happen because the plates are moving north, Africa, Arabia, and India, into Asia. But what you can't do is define a plate boundary through here. The job is actually to find where all these faults are, like I've been talking about in Iran, to understand why they're there, to identify them, and then prepare people for what they're going to get in the future. Uh, it's a very hard job, and that's why these places are vulnerable. Most of this area, then, is full of towns which have been destroyed in the past by earthquakes, but which now have populations which are huge. And the problem is, the, is, is this concentration of them. And that's why you get this extraordinary contrast between, in this earthquake in Japan, 2011, 6,000 people were exposed on that coast, 6 million people were exposed on that coastline to tsunamis, 27,000 died. Most of them, almost all of them knew what to do. Right? And this earthquake was about 1,000 times bigger than this one in Bam, where out of 120,000 
population 30,000 died. The contrast is absolutely astonishing here, and that's what's really behind this picture here, which is when we look at what this is about, and this is showing the cost of an earthquake in terms of money versus the number of deaths in the earthquake here, and there are some I've identified. Here's one in California. This was in the suburb of Los Angeles in 1994. It was the same size as the one in Bam in Iran in 2003. Same size earthquake. This is in a suburb of Los Angeles, and it killed 30 people. This is a rural town in Iran, and it killed 30,000 people. This one cost much less money. This one cost a huge amount of money in California, right? Um, but if we compare that with, with Haiti, the big one in 2010 in Haiti, that one killed a quarter of a million people. Right? And it was quite expensive too. But if you compare it in terms of money, this one here costs less than 1% of California's GDP. It was really a blip financially. This one is more than 100% of Haiti's GDP. It has wiped out the entire country. So this is really what's behind that statement we you hear quite a lot now, that in earthquakes, the rich pay and the poor die. Earthquakes in places like Japan, California, New Zealand, Chile, are now largely about money. Uh, by comparison to these countries over here where they're about killing people in just vast numbers. California will never have the experience of these places in Iran I've told you about. It's just not going to happen there. Of course, the other thing is, which is, again, very often quoted, is that it's not earthquakes that kill people, buildings do, and this is absolutely right. That The problem is in these places like Central Asia that the population are concentrated since the Second World War in these vulnerable towns, in terrible buildings, apartment blocks like this, and we know what happens to those in earthquakes. They collapse like houses of cards. This is one in Armenia in 1988. Uh, these are terrible buildings by comparison with, with places further west. One thing you can do, and this is pointed out by, by these two characters here, these colleagues of mine, um, Ambrose, Nick Ambrose and Roger Billum, is that the, 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 the problem really correlates with wealth. If you, if you pop, this is wealth here, gross um, per, per capita income here, and this is uh, corruption, right? The problem with buildings is actually not codes. It's quite clear from the Japan experience and California experience, you can build buildings which will stay up. If you tell the engineers and architects what they're up against, they can design things which will stay up. The problem is actually making sure people really do follow all the specifications properly. They don't cut corners, they don't save money by using less reinforcing or by mixing the concrete badly. How do you deal with that? Well, this is an interesting picture because there is a, an outfit, Transparency International, which produced what's called a corruption index for different countries in terms of what it's like to do building. They regard the building industry as the most corrupt sector of the world economy, and they're plotting up here uh, people who are not corrupt very much. Here's New Zealand, the US up here, Japan versus countries where corruption is a huge problem. And you can see there is a correlation with national wealth, which is hardly a surprise here. And you can see that there is a sort of line going through the middle of all this. And broadly speaking, you can say that up here, some countries, notably like Chile, even India actually, are doing better than you might expect for their wealth. They're, they're doing quite well, whereas other countries down here are doing significantly worse than they might be doing. And one of the things you can do is actually say, okay, if we look at here's per capita income, here's how they're doing on, in corruption. Are they doing better or worse than you might expect? 90% of the deaths in earthquakes are in this corner of the box. They're in, the, in, in, in poor countries, but poor countries which are also doing not as well as they should do in this business of, of, of the perception of corruption. I mean, at the risk of trivialising this slightly, I mean, it, it's very easy to conclude these are the, the ones who are doing well and these ones who are not doing so well. That's not really where the problem is. The problem is really down here, 
where it's too hard a call to say what actually matters down here. If you're in one of these very poor countries and you can't, you're worried about feeding your family tonight or next week, you're less worried about some perceived risk to your grandchildren in a few generations' time, and yet it's clear that making that investment is, is what makes these other countries rather better. So it, 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 these, these are the places which are really the vulnerable places in the future because they, it's very hard... Um, even if you're a politician, it's hard to, to know if you do you spend your limited amount of money making a new hospital or do you spend it on strengthening some sort of infrastructure or, uh, which might not actually be threatened for, in, for the next generation or not. These are not straightforward things to deal with. Um, what is clear, though, is, is who's vulnerable. It, the, the earthquakes on, on the continents now are targeting the people who are vulnerable because ignorance, poverty and corruption actually all produce the same effect as far as the earthquakes are concerned. The building industry has got this huge boom coming over the next 10 years. They will build a, a well over a billion uh, dwellings in Asia over the next 10 years and this is actually where people are vulnerable. So I don't want to end by saying, because I'm sure there'll be questions, you know, what can you do? The the thing which really does work in the end is education. Because once people in Iran, for example, start saying to their politicians, look, magnitude 6 earthquake in Bam kills 30% of the population. In California, that size earthquake is about putting tins back on supermarket shelves. We want to be like them. We regard this as a priority. You don't have to die in earthquakes of that size. Then that helps people prioritize. Right? So education is a very big part of it. It's something which we are trying hard to do, my, I, me and my colleagues around the world, trying to um, make the, the scientists in these countries part of the international community so they can talk to their own politicians, which is much less inflammatory than someone from outside coming and talking to their politicians. They can say, look, here's actually what's going on, and um, we're part of an international community which can reinforce this point of view if, if you want another opinion and so on. So education is part of it. I will end by saying what isn't part of it because um, th uh, there's usually a very obvious question afterwards which is earthquake prediction. This is a, a quote by Charles Richter, the guy who invented the magnitude scale when he retired because we can't predict when earthquakes will happen. He said, for years I fought a losing battle to keep away from involvement with the notion of earthquake prediction. The press and public will go toward the suggestion of prediction like hog to the trough. Meanwhile, other objects of investigation are neglected or distorted, and aid is given to the people who would like to forget the fact that for public safety, we don't need prediction, that earthquake risk could be removed almost completely by proper building, construction, and regulation. And this is absolutely true. The reason why people no longer die in earthquakes in large numbers in Japan and California is not because we can predict them. It's because people build good buildings which stay up. Right? And the, the, the idea of some silver bullet is, is really a, a dangerous red herring in all this. We can't do it. We're quite good now, as you can see, at identifying faults. We're quite good at saying, here's what you're up against. We can't tell when it's going to come, but here's what you've got to plan for. What we can't do is say it'll be next Wednesday at 9.30. And we don't need to. What you need to do is actually make the things which don't fall down. Thank you very much. Oh, how kind. Thank you very much indeed. What do I do now? I think there are probably some questions. I'm very happy to answer them. I can see. Sure, uh, sure. the gentleman here. Oh, you need microphones. Okay. We, we um, tend to feel comparatively safe from earthquakes in this country, but I gather that in the 16th century there was a tsunami that came up the Bristol Channel where we now have a, a nuclear power.
power plant? Uh, not really a tsunami. We don't. Uh, this is. Okay. I don't think it was a tsunami. I think you get. We do get tidal surges and storm surges, which can be also very dangerous, like in 1953 uh, in the North Sea. Um, again, there's a slight misuse of the word, right? I, I don't. I th it wasn't. This, whatever happened in the Bristol Channel then was not either the scale or same origin as the kind of thing in Japan. There's nowhere really in the Atlantic which can do this. There is some talk about the sides falling off volcanoes in places like Tenerife and uh, the Canary Islands generally, and that does happen. But the side falling off a volcano does not produce a wave which is long compared to the water depth, so it dissipates. Um, the easiest experiment to do, if you go and chuck a rock into a pond, you'll see what actually happens is that out the front you get long wavelengths and behind you get short wavelengths because the, velocity, the speed depends on the wavelength. And that means that the energy just gets spread out. That's why those things never travel very far. So if you're on the beach in Tenerife and the side falls off the volcano, you're finished. There'll be a huge splash. But it's the chances of it ending up in the Bristol Channel or hitting Florida or New York is very small. It won't do it. It's not going to be long enough. So there are issues of that sort, right, which do matter locally. But um, by contrast, the, the, the tsunami which left Sumatra in 2004 arrived in Iceland 30 hours later. It had exactly the same shape as when it left Sumatra. It was smaller because it's spreading out around the circumference of a circle. It was only about 10 centimetres high. But it had exactly the same shape as when it left Sumatra. And that's what allows those things to travel right round. So that the analogy of a stone in a pond is a bad analogy for a tsunami, at least a transoceanic tsunami. On the other hand, it's a good analogy for a splash if you're on the beach. One of these things happen. Yeah. Sorry, you had a question here at the front. Yeah, well, that's absolutely the point. So the, the, the real problem is, is, is what to do uh, about these populations which are concentrated in these towns in very bad buildings which are, and they're poor. It is a huge problem. And I don't know what to do with it. You put your finger on the most important problem. You can... If, if, what, you, what, what you can do is enforce codes that exist. Most of these countries have perfectly sensible building codes. They're aware of what's going on. The problem is actually enforcing them. Uh, and uh, that won't help you. That'll help you with new buildings if you do that, but it won't help you with older buildings. And it's not clear what to do about that, but the one ray of hope which I can give you is from the experience of Los Angeles. So Los Angeles' experience goes back to 1933. There's a big earthquake in Long Beach, which destroyed a lot of schools and public buildings during the night. So it didn't kill that many people, but it scared them. And they brought in their first building codes at that time, and they had to decide what to do about their unreinforced buildings in the rest of the city. And they made a strategic decision. They could do nothing about it. They just had to do now something on the new buildings. And they passed a thing called the Field Act, which required a government inspector to be resident on the building site 24 hours a day for a public building. Right? No fooling around. The guy has to actually live there, and the builders can't move without the permission of this bloke. Well, what happened about, and this was 1933, and about 10 or 15 years ago, the city went back to think, well, we'd better look at our unreinforced heritage masonry buildings. Where are we with that? And they found that there weren't any that the ones which really mattered, because they were historically important, had been retrofitted, they'd been strengthened, which you can do, but it's expensive. The ones which were not important had simply disappeared in the redevelopment of the real estate, so people would replace an old building with a newer building, and the new building had to obey those codes. And so the city has become extremely resilient through making that early strategic decision and having about eight decades of good luck. 
right? Uh, and so what's actually the engine which has driven their resilience has been the development of the real estate itself in Los Angeles. Now, Los Angeles is in a confined basin, so um, the problem with some of these big other cities in Central Asia is they sprawl outwards, but still the central part of the city tends to get redeveloped all the time uh, as, as fancier apartment blocks and, and offices and buildings. And that's the only hope I can offer is that is you've got to start. You've got to not be mesmerised by the scale of the problem and do nothing. You've got to start somewhere, and then you need a bit of luck. But the big earthquakes don't repeat more often than every few hundred years anyway, so the chances are you will get luck. Um, and, and may, but you've got to start somewhere. Not a good answer, but it's the, it's the, it's the key question, and that's what, uh, the only way I can see forward, I'm afraid. You Yes, thank you very much. Um, brilliant talk, lovely piece of research. Um, what I'm concerned about is um, what you're talking about, earthquake prediction, and what happened in Italy. Oh, this, is a, this was a, a very destructive thing in Italy. So the, the, the story is a complicated one, but I'll try and summarise it. That, that um, yes, my colleagues, seismologists in Italy, are in, in, in deep trouble for, for essentially failing to... Uh, uh, it depends who you talk to, right? They were for, for, uh, the, the prosecutor somewhat backtracked and said, because uh, everyone realised you can't actually predict these things, they, they said they failed to actually describe properly the uncertainties that were involved and so on and so on. The truth is you can't predict them. Uh, the, th what actually happened in Italy is, is sorting itself out. The effect is that now, of course, people, especially in Italy, are very reluctant to, to say anything which I think is morally wrong and uh, is a huge practical difficulty. I mean, Vesuvius can rumble all it likes underneath Naples and no one's going to say a word. I mean, that can't be good, right? Uh, there's no reason to... Uh, so what, what the, the problem actually in, in, in Italy was that there was a group of scientists who were looking at these things. There were a lot of small earthquakes. Small earthquakes are sometimes followed by a big earthquake, but not always. And uh, in fact, the answer is about 2% on average that are and some aren't. Um, and so the, the, the scientists were actually giving a reliable, uh, regular, consistent uh, point of view, which was that we don't know what's going to happen, but actually you live in a very dangerous place. You need to make sure your buildings are okay. There have been lots of previous earthquakes in L'Aquila. Um, but eventually, someone made a statement who was not actually a scientist, but who was a government spokesman, saying that what the scientists are trying to say is that the little earthquakes are going to release the energy and there won't be a big one, which is, it was immediately jumped on by the scientists and said this is not true, um, which it isn't, um, but the damage had been done. It sounds kind of reasonable. It sounds like a, you know, not a crazy point of view, and it's not a crazy point of view. It's just not right. Um, uh, and then, of course, the, there was a, a bigger one, and so you, you know, the whole thing is confused and a mess. Fine, I'm, I'm going to stop. Thank you. Very much.